chapter 3, verse 7 to uh, 19. So we'll begin to read in chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, and then we'll pick up our passage uh, for tonight. So Ephesians chapter 3 at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made, Paul is writing, a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And let's turn now to chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, which is the little bit we'll look at tonight. Paul writing to the Christians in this little church in Ephesus, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, on the back of the service sheet, there are some headings that will help us navigate our way through this. Let me spend a little bit of time just building the context in Ephesians Why are we doing that? Well, any time that we look at the practical applications in the second half, we've got to have the the what God has given us bit in the first half well and truly to the fore of our minds. Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 is about who we are as Christians in our local churches. Just worth remembering that the New Testament, when it speaks about the church, 
almost all of the time is speaking about local churches, local expressions of God's uh, reconciling wisdom on the earth. So Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, who we are as Christians in our local church. So what is it that spiritually defines this group of people along with those who come to the other services? And chapters 4 to 6, living out who we are as Christians in our local churches. You don't live the Christian life. You live out who you are in Christ, and that is the Christian life. So Ephesians 1 to 3, who we are as Christians in our local churches, we are, chapter 1, wonderfully blessed. We were, chapter 2, dead, but now have been made alive by grace through faith. We are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not a church put together by any human means. We are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus. We are reconciled, this is on into chapter 3, not only to God but to one another, called to live and witness together in local churches like Chammers, the very existence of which on the earth reveals the wisdom of God and is a foretaste of eternity. That's a big deal. And uh, I'll come back to that uh, later. Our very existence as a church is so that the wisdom of God can be revealed for His glory and that people can experience a foretaste of eternity. Now, the very end of chapter 3, the end of the first half of the letter, as we read a moment ago, is a prayer acknowledging the fact that the Holy Spirit of Jesus has come to dwell in our inner being as individuals, fundamentally changing us and fundamentally uniting us to the people around us in whose lives the Holy Spirit has come to dwell. We are Christians. We are Christ Jesus dwelling within us people. We tend to think always of a Christian as someone who responds to Christ. Now, that is true. That's faith. But a Christian is spoken of primarily in the New Testament as someone in whom Christ lives. Christians are people in whom Christ has come to dwell. And His power is at work with us and within us by His Spirit, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's Ephesians 1 to 3, who we are as Christians in our local churches. Ephesians 4 to 6, living out who we are. Chapter 4, verse 1, just look back at that. It's a pivot verse. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. That's a, that means live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The calling to which you have been called is chapters 1 to 3, the supernatural calling, who we are as Christians in our local churches, and chapters 4 to 6, living out that calling living out who we are as Christians in our local churches. The phrase, in a manner worthy of our calling, is striking. A manner that is worthy of who we are. A manner that is worthy of the one we love, Jesus. A manner that is worthy of the person 
who indwells us, whose name we bear, whose gospel we share, whose glory we will inherit, and whose message He has given to us to speak. Living out our calling as Christians means unity. That's the beginning of chapter 4. It means maturity. That's the second half of chapter 4. The sign of a mature local church right through that congregation, people speaking the truth in love to one another, people not saying at the door, isn't it a nice day? Well, not just that. People saying, how are you? What can I pray for you? Remember you asked me to pray for that? How are you finding the sermons on Ephesians? How are you getting on in your house group on Acts? What's the one step forward that you are thinking of taking? That's speaking the truth in love. Unity, maturity, and the second bit of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, no longer living in the way we used to. The metaphors are putting off the old self, putting on the new And then chapter 5, just let me show you some of the phrases. Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, live as children of light. And then to our passage, verse 15 of chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, let's read 15 to 20. Uh, again. And as I read, I want to ask you to reflect on whether or not you think there is a paradox or a contradiction in what Paul is writing, an odd combination of ideas. Listen out for that. Look carefully. He writes how you live, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the paradox? What's the odd combination of ideas? Well, the contrast between verses 15 to 18 and verses 19 to 20. Verses 15 to 18 have us on, I don't know, um, war footing, galvanized, vigilant, ready for war. Yet verses 19 are about singing and thanking. On the one hand, ready for battle, and on the other side, enjoying peace. Seems odd to have these two ideas side by side, a paradox. Now, the Apostle Paul seems fond of talking about paradoxes in the Christian life. So here's uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 8 to 10, describing his own life as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. A paradox attention. But that is exactly how the Christian life is. Back in Ephesians 5, we are, as a local church, 
in a spiritual war and need to be vigilant, on our guard, standing to attention. But equally, we are at peace with God and need to be singing and joyful and thankful. And embracing that tension is important. You see, if we live as Christians in a local church only as it were on a war footing, galvanized, vigilant, ready, and focused, if that is the dominant ethos of the church, or the only ethos of the church, then we'll miss out on the joy and the singing and the thanksgiving and all it means to be in Christ. And our life as a church will be joyless and stoical and hard. And yet, on the other hand, if we live as Christians in a local church just for the joy, just for the singing, and just for the thanksgiving, then we are in danger of A, being taken out by the normal grist-to-the-mill stuff in the world when it hits us, and the evil power behind it. We're in danger, A, of being taken out, and B, we are in danger of missing out, missing out on the advance of the gospel that comes through spiritual warfare. Now, we need to feel and embrace this tension. Now, feeling and embracing a tension uh, does not mean some kind of middle ground where you fuse the two together. It doesn't mean watering both down to some kind of pale, colorless, anemic blandness. Holding the two in tension means readiness for war and then complete serenity and peace and praise and thanksgiving side by side. When I take a wedding, one of the things I do at rehearsals um, is say that the best weddings are when you have real solemnity alongside exuberant, spontaneous joy. Not some kind of mishmash of the two, but one against the other. A bit like in a wedding, when a couple promise and the minister pronounces them husband and wife and we sing a song like we'll sing at the end of this service and there's a prayer and then there's applause side by side. So it is with Christians in a local church, the best churches or the New Testament model of church is where both dimensions are embraced, real solemnity alongside spontaneous joy, ready for battle alongside the enjoyment of peace. And that's not easy to get right, both of these. And remember, when we talk about Christians in a local church, that's not just Sundays. Uh, that's just one bit of our life as a local church. We're still a local church when we meet in other contexts like our small groups. We're still a local church when we're not meeting with anyone in the church. Like a family is still a family when family members are on their own. I guess you could say when we meet on Sundays, both of these dimensions are embraced. Our Sunday service is embracing this paradox, but certainly the singing, the joy, the thanksgiving with one another is a major part of equipping us to live out our faith during the week. So let's not lose the tension or the paradox, but embrace it. So first... Verses 15 to 18, be vigilant because the days are evil. 
Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now consider the phrase, the days are evil. That's the heart of this little section. What does Paul mean by that phrase, the days are evil? Let me suggest two things. First, I think it's just a general description of this age, the world we live in. The world before Jesus returns and establishes a new world or a new creation. This world and what it offers will pass away. We will spend a short span of years in this world. This world will offer much. It will deliver little. It will not last. So Paul is saying, don't waste your life on earth with stuff that does not matter. Make, he writes, the best use of the time. What are we doing with our life for God, for His glory, for His church, for His mission? What will you do with your retirement? And don't be daft. You are allowed to do nice things. God wants us to. The Christian life, remember, is a fusion of that tension, of war readiness and joy. And if that means for you in retirement, serving in your local church and going on a nice holiday twice a year, well, maybe that's a good outworking of that tension. That's not wrong. It's not unbiblical. It's not ungodly. But don't spend your retirement throwing the towel in and doing nothing in the local church where you are. Make the best use of the time or at university or if you have a leadership role in the church, make the best use of the time, the short span of years we have in this world. Invest for eternity. Now, let me encourage you to think and pray about what that might mean for you and have a conversation with someone. That's one of these truth and love conversations. Pray and talk to someone. And so the phrase, the days are evil, has a general meaning along these lines, but there is perhaps a more pointed meaning to the sharp reality of spiritual warfare as the church witnesses to Jesus in the world. Now, there's a key verse in Ephesians. Flip back to chapter 3 and verse 10. It's a key verse. Paul writes, chapter 3 and verse 10, that through the church, think of living local churches scattered across the earth, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Chalmers Church, along with other living local churches in this city, reveals the wisdom of God and is a foretaste of eternity. Now, yes, the revelation of God's wisdom through this church, Chalmers, is marred but it's there. It is there. God speaks week by week and thus reveals His wisdom. God's people become Christians and are reconciled to one another and live in unity with one another and thus reveal God's wisdom. And God's people living in unity with one another live in community, 
caring for one another, loving one another, experiencing life together, facing death together. And so this living local church, however fitfully, however weakly, reveals the wisdom of God and is a foretaste of eternity. That's who we are. And every single day Chalmers Church is in existence, God's wisdom is made known to whom? Ephesians 3 and 10, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are they? Now flip forward to chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Every single day, Chalmers Church or any other living local church is in existence. We are in a spiritual battle. The rulers and authorities that a local church shines out to are evil forces. Every single day a living church is in existence. It is in a spiritual battle. And we have been given what it takes to stand up to this, to press forward and make progress for the gospel, but not, Paul says, if your guard is down. We need to be on a war footing, galvanized, vigilant, ready, focused, and prepared. We need to put on the full armor of God. We need to be on the front foot with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and in prayer, not lazing around with our guard down. Therefore, he writes, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. There's a general application just to living in the world, but there's a spiritual warfare application. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but we fill with the Spirit. Now, that verse is not saying that Christians cannot drink alcohol, because some of you will ask me that afterwards. Not saying that. That might be a, a, a line that you take from elsewhere in Scripture, but that's not what it's saying. It's very practical. It's simply saying if you are under the influence of alcohol, it changes you. If you are under the influence of a lot of alcohol, it really does change you, and not for the better. It could even destroy you, and it could destroy somebody else. If you are under the influence of the Spirit, and if you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit in a way that you have opened up your life for the Spirit that lives within you to have His course through every single limb in your life, every single sinew or, or, or finger end, that changes you certainly for the better. So what are we under the influence of? One of the ways, as I said, God reveals His wisdom through a living local church is a transformed community, a community that is distinctively different, attractive in the world. That's what we've been seeing 
in the second half of the letter, putting off the old self which belongs to our former manner of life and putting on the new self. Being imitators of God, living as Christ loved us as children of light. As a staff and map team, one of the things we get up to is uh, we have seminars on uh, Fridays or Wednesdays in part of our training programs. And over the last two Fridays, we've been thinking about what authenticity in ministry looks like. And one of the marks we've been looking at of authenticity is holiness or Christ-likeness or godliness. And that's all over these chapters in Ephesians chapters 4, chapter 5, holiness, purity, and you can read what that means. Can I encourage you to listen to Johnny and Davy's sermons the last two Sunday evenings? They're both helpful. Paul's persuasive logic to be who you are, put off the old self, put on the new self. You do not need to be who you were anymore. And I guess what verses 15 to 18 add to that, it's foolish to play with fire. So can I encourage you, as I speak first to myself, to our staff team, to our map team, and to the elders this Wednesday, to put to death to put to death whatever it is that is holding you back in the Christian life. I bet there are many things in this room that we could describe under the general metaphor of under the influence of that are unwholesome and unhelpful. And if we shook them off or shed these clothes, then we would be more ready, and as we'll see in a moment, more joyful when we sing. Put to death or kill that sin. And do it in the realm, not of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, but Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Every sin you put to death is a forgiven sin. Every sin you put to death is a dying sin. You fight sin as a victor, not as a victim, because Christ has paid the price. So kill that sin. There's another good topic for a conversation of truth in love. Now, that's the first half. Quickly, on the second half, be vigilant because the days are evil. That's the first half. We're on a war footing, galvanized, vigilant, ready for battle, serious stuff. But here we are at that moment in the wedding when the atmosphere changes. Verses 19, enjoying peace, singing and continually giving thanks to God. And the Holy Spirit is the bridge that connects the two. The Holy Spirit is what motivates us and galvanizes us for battle, for the spiritual life. And the Holy Spirit is what wells up within us and makes us sing like Christians sing. I had a little article I've got in a book, What Do Boring Christians Sing? Christians Never sing in a boring way because they mean what they say. You do not need to have a singing voice to have a voice. Some of you can sing, some of you can't sing. Every Christian has a singing voice because we sing from the hearts, making melody to the Lord. Now let's look at these uh, verses uh, 19 and 20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Why do Christians sing when they meet together? I've been vexing over that all week. I eventually, here's a confession, typed it into Google. Why do Christians sing? And lo and behold, there was the answer from a man uh, uh, called Bob Colfin, who's director of Sovereign Grace Music. And I checked him out, and he's fine. Why do Christians sing? Well, let me read to you, not from Colfin, but from Colossians, a parallel passage. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So fuse that passage with our one in Ephesians, and they're very similar. And with Bob Colfin's help, why do Christians sing? Three R's. The Christian equivalent of reading, writing, and arithmetic. One, singing helps us learn God's words. Spot on. Number two, singing helps us respond to God's grace. Number three, singing helps us reflect back to God His own glory. Three great descriptions of why Christians sing. I find that helpful. And as we look at the songs we sing together on a Sunday, do they help us reflect on God's words respond to God's grace, and reflect back to God His own glory. And I hope and pray they do, whatever order we sing them in. That was lost on you, wasn't it? (laughs) You're just thinking that's a bit too far. Who are we addressing when we sing? We sing and make melody, Paul writes, to the Lord with your heart. So we are addressing the Lord when we sing, and the orientation in our minds and hearts is up. We are addressing the Lord when we sing. Not quite sure why we think God is up. God is everywhere, but we're addressing the Lord when we sing. But we're also addressing one another when we meet together. The beginning of verse 19, just look at it, addressing one another. So there's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to our singing. We've got to do both. We address God and we address one another. And that just cautions us against putting I or me as the focus of the singing time in church. There's no I or me. It is to God and to the others in this room. That's not to say that I or me is wrong. Let's not be daft. But the orientation is singing to God and to each other. Now, what are we doing when we address or sing to the Lord? Adoration and praise. What are we doing when we address or sing to one another, like we did in the room? What's happening spiritually when you sing to the person beside you, even though in our culture we look straight ahead at a screen. We are edifying one another, or in the language of Colossians, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, speaking the truth in love with a tune. Speaking the truth in love with a tune. Building each other up in the Lord, encouraging one another, And as we sing together on Sundays, together we adore God and edify and encourage 
one another. How do we do it by singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart? Now, there's an encouragement to you if you think you can't sing. What counts is making melody with your heart. You know that fellow on telly, Gareth Malone, who has all his choirs? No, you don't. <laughs> Does anyone know that? Thank you. He takes, he takes people who can't sing and makes them sing. I think if he took any living local church, just like us, who I think they could do extraordinarily well because of the passion and the, and the, the drive and the vitality and people singing. Every Christian has a voice. What counts is making melody with your heart. You might be way out of tune, but if your heart is in tune with God, then God hears it in perfect pitch. Let me express it like this. If you love God and sing to Him from your heart, then He will derive great pleasure from your praise. If you love the people around you now and sing to them from your heart, you will bless them and encourage them. They will say things on the way home like, it was good to be there. It was good to sing together. It was good to sing that particular song. And what they are saying or what you are saying is you are experiencing or reflecting on the edification that comes from corporate singing in a community. And what should we sing? Let's just clear up 2,000 years of argument. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We know what psalms are, they're in the Bible. We know what hymns are, they're not, but they're based on what's in the Bible. They are old hymns and there are new hymns. Let's remember that the old hymns are only the old hymns that were good old hymns, because all the bad old hymns don't survive. And therefore, let's not contrast the good old hymns with a mass of modern hymns, because what will survive are the good modern hymns. Of course, there are bad ones and there are wonderful ones. Hymns and spiritual song. What's a spiritual song? We don't really know, so it's everything else. Sp spiritual songs are songs where the lines are repeated. <coughs> Maximum number of three times. <laughs> but I don't like spiritual songs, you might say. Especially ones where the lines repeat again and again. But I don't like psalms, especially if they're unaccompanied. But I don't like hymns because they're too old-fashioned. And if you don't like all three, well, you're scuppered. Who are you singing to? To God who loves all three. And to one another. And in a congregation which is united by the gospel, which is all sorts of people, there will be lovers of psalms, lovers of hymns, and lovers of spiritual songs. So let's never, ever, ever in our services have a morning service of psalms, an afternoon service of hymns, and an evening service of spiritual songs. If you want to do that, you just need to rip up Ephesians and say, we cannot be a church community. I remember a lady up here who joined the church. She's not in the first flush of youth. And when people come and join the church up here, I get them to stand behind the lectern and they panic. And I say, I want you to look at these people singing. Because the New Testament says that's what we should do. I get to see you singing. It's wonderful. It encourages me no end. In my bleakest, hardest weeks, I come on a Sunday and I kind of edge the person off leading. I want to lead. And the reason I want to lead is I want to watch you singing before I preach. So encouraging. 
It's so inc- And this lady, I said, what do you think of these songs? And we were definitely on the spiritual songs. songs. And she said, well, and I said, you really don't like them at all, do you? And she said, well, no, I don't. But just look at the pleasure on these people's faces as they sing. Now, I've never forgotten her saying that. I've never forgotten that. We sing to God and to others. What does God like? What do they like? Well, let's have that. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That may be connected in Paul's mind to what we sing, but my hunch it's a more general exhortation, that spirit of continual prayerful thanksgiving for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus In the Lord I will be ever thankful, so much to be thankful for. There is so much to be thankful for. Are you a glass half empty or a glass half full person? Here's the deal when it comes to thanksgiving. It does not matter at all. It's nothing to do with that. Because you can thank God in the bleakest, deepest troughs and valleys. You can read Romans 8 on a sunny day. You can read Romans 8 on the hardest day of life. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Forgiveness, adoption, inheritance. Let's be thankful as a local church. Let's be th- There's another topic for a conversation, speaking the truth in love. What, what are you thanking God for? And so these verses present us with a paradox. We are at war and we need to be vigilant, but equally we are at peace with God and we need to be joyful and thankful. Let's never, ever, ever fuse the two into some kind of anemic, waterless uh, kind of uh, experience of church that's like the water that you've washed the dishes in three hours on. Let's have, have, have sharp, alert vigilance with the Word of God in our hands, with praying. Let's turn up and listen to our, 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 our mission person speak about what's going on at the vanguard of the gospel in the world. And then we'll meet on Sunday, and he and we will sing together. And we might just, if we're brave enough, look at each other as we sing, catch each other's eye, rather than sit in lines and edify each other. And then go back onto alert And then get back to peace and praise and love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these uh, rich and full words in Ephesians to help us practically as a church. Help us, Lord, to live them out. Help us to be a church that is on a war footing and at peace, ready for spiritual warfare and singing lots, serious and so very joyful. And we pray all that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.